Okay, we are live. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillah rabbil alameen. Wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh to all our dear listeners and attendees. Uh, we are really pleased today to have uh, Dr. Omar Hussain with us from across the pond from the United States of America, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And here to discuss a very sensitive but very important topic, uh, the the what we've called the pornography pandemic, something which Muslims around the world are involved in, exposed to, perhaps addicted to, or have challenged, been, been challenged by. But many of us either don't acknowledge the, the severity of the problem or have no idea where to start when dealing with it. So Dr. Omar, uh, once more to yourself now, Assalamu alaikum wa and welcome to the Roots Conversation. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Nice to see you and I'm glad we were able to work this out. Alhamdulillah. Um, I thought I'd kind of start by uh, asking you to tell the audience a little bit about yourself and how you got here, how you got to this topic, but you know where it all began in terms of your studies um, and how you how you, how you got here. Sure. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim ar-Rahim wa ba'd. So um, I had a mentor uh, when I was growing up at, at the masjid near my home. And uh, he was uh, what they call an LMFT, which is a licensed marriage and family therapist. Um, and at that time, it was, and even still now, but especially at that time, it was quite unusual for an imam to have uh, training formally in the Islamic studies as well as in counseling or psychology. And uh, what he had told me was that uh, individuals would come to him in his congregation and he just found he couldn't really help them after some point, right? Serious substance abuse, severe um, anxiety, depression, marital issues. He just found he didn't have the tools to, uh, to help them. I mean, you can tell them to pray and make the dua, which of course is part of the solution. Uh, I'm not belittling that by, by any means, um, but it's one part of a multi-part multi solution. And so I guess to kind of combine the science with the spiritual, uh, he pursued uh, this uh, degree in training in marriage and family therapy. So before I left to do my Islamic studies at Al-Azhar University, uh, he had told me to, you should go into, don't, he said, don't go into uh, clinical mental health. He said, go into marriage and family therapy because if you can deal with couples, you can deal with anything. Which <laughs> 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 I thought was quite funny. Um, but I didn't, although of course I, I do do uh, couples therapy and I, I have some uh, courses in it, it, I wasn't super excited about that idea. I wanted to go more the clinical mental health route. So um, I, I went overseas and I came back and uh, within that first year, um, I decided that this was just going to help me in what I'm doing. So I waited a year because of course here in the US, the tuition is astronomical. Um, and so to, to get in-state tuition and local tuition, I waited the year and I enrolled in a uh, master's program in, in mental health. And I thought I would be a religious person who would just be on the defensive for the whole time. And everyone's going to think that I'm, you know, who is this religious nut who's in here? Uh, us enlightened, you know, secular type people, uh, we're going to show him. Um, I found quite the opposite. Actually, in fact, uh, in the very first class I took, the professor 
Well, he said, introduce yourselves. Obviously, this is a master's program, small classes. And uh, so everyone kind of went around, okay, you know, I'm so-and-so. I work at a addiction clinic or something. <laughs> and then it came to me. And so my official title was religious director, right? <laughs> so I said, you know, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm Omar Hussain. Uh, I'm a religious director uh, at a local mosque. And, and then he's like, oh, so you're an imam. <laughs> and everybody had kind of turned and looked back to me because everyone else is kind of similar, you yeah. know, what, what they were working in. But uh, I was perhaps the first, um, you know, clergy member and probably almost certainly the, f the first uh, Muslim, um, you know, imam to go through something like that. So then he says, okay, let me ask you a question. Do you see that your, do you think that your religious faith contradicts with science? And I didn't even hesitate for two seconds. I said, no, you know, like next question. And then he kind of paused and he said, uh, like, yeah, I don't think it does either. Um, the funny part about all this is he is very much non-religious and became one of my closest uh, advisors. And I still speak to him to this day. Um, so it's funny how those things work out. Um, but so, so I was pleasantly surprised. Um, I, I, I found... You know, obviously, there's 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 problems uh, for us as Muslims in academia that we need to navigate. But I never felt like I was just felt you know like they were treating me as less intelligent or anything like that because of my background. Hmm. So I did that, and of course, as I'm learning, I'm implementing things um, in the masjid. Uh, I'm utilize make you know making use of the khutbas to address topics like substance abuse um, and mental health myths and things like that. And uh, I just really enjoyed the field. I started reading about the history of Islamic psychology and Imam Ghazali and uh, Dr. Malik al-Badri, rahimahullah, who, who died recently, one of the pioneers in the field. And uh, just starting to see the background and everything that our tradition has. And so I've just kind of got deeper into that. And then I decided to pursue a, a doctorate degree. And... Um, you know, alhamdulillah, I, I got through that alive and uh, I will be, I'm a university professor now as well as still doing uh, community work. Um, the reason, my, now my dissertation topic, and I know we'll touch on this later, was on pornography. And uh, my thinking going in was, what can I do that's going to benefit the community, hmm. right? I'm not, that was, that's my motivation for everything I do. It, it's not, uh, it's not really, well, that's the core, I should say, of everything. Sure. And so I could have played it safe and maybe done something on Islamophobia or something like that. But I said, let me try to do something that can benefit the community. Um, I will have to admit it was kind of embarrassing at first. Hmm. Um, I talked to people close to me and they're like, are you sure you want to do that? Right. Hmm. I, I often joke uh, that I, I would never tell my parents what my dissertation topic was. You know? <laughs> My dad would be like, are you doing something on addictions? I'm like, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, something on addictions. Yeah. So I was never specific. I was kind of vague. Um, Is it because of the stigma stigma around the subject? Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. I mean, yeah. I mean, this is, this is, I mean, you don't pass your program unless you defend your dissertation. And uh, this is like nothing else really matters, you know, if you don't pass the dissertation. And, this is what was what my name was going to be attached to. Hmm. 
So it was like, is that what you really want? Is that what you want to tell people? But alhamdulillah, um, I said, you know what? The need is far greater than maybe some discomfort I feel. So hmm. uh, I have no regrets. And um, that was that was kind of how I started. I actually, we had a, a we had research in our in our master's program, and I started researching it there. Uh, it was obviously far less in depth, but I actually came back and referred to it as I got into my doctorate uh, program. Um, but that's when I started. I started in the master's program, uh, just looking at pornography, kind of in general. Um, obviously, there wasn't much on Muslims. I don't think there was anything on on uh, American Muslims. I found a couple international studies which left a lot to be desired. I don't know if it was a translation. I couldn't really understand what was being said. Hmm. Um, and I also was seeing it in my work as an imam. I would get emails. I would get you know anonymous messages. So I knew the problem was there um, and maybe some were addressing it, but probably not at the level it needs to be. Uh, you, you referred to it as a pandemic. And I think that's quite accurate. Uh, it doesn't matter with globalization, doesn't matter where we live anymore. Uh, with the internet, everything is is accessible. And, you know, they call it the three A's. One of the early researchers called it the three A's, uh, accessible, anonymous, and affordable. And so that was Cooper who said that. So um, that's where we're at now. And so I hope, inshallah, that this can um, help a little bit. From there, I've kind of advised on some uh, some national projects here with young Muslims. Alhamdulillah, we are going to have a program on that this Saturday. And, and they've collected massive data you know, across oh. the country, and they've hit younger age groups than I have. I mean, I obviously, see. the approach can be a little bit more different because it's Muslim-focused specifically. Of course. And a Muslim organization. And not that mine wasn't, but, you know, it's, it's, it's just navigating a little bit differently. Um, and so, oh, inshallah. What, is the, what does the data exactly say, Dr. Omar? Like, the, you've obviously collected data. I think you had a survey going around uh, in the midst of your PhD studies, but also you know, orgs that like young Muslims, and even not just you know what the numbers say, but obviously you were driven to seeing this as a community problem from your years as an imam, right? And uh, I think there is a sense of like, for someone who's struggling with pornography to go to the imam, he's got to be a really approachable imam. It's it's you know, young people might probably try you know other avenues before they go to the imam because there's a sense of guilt associated with kind of like the local religious figure. But even so, I mean, just talking about the size of the problem or, you know, who's vulnerable, who's vulnerable, uh, or, or what have you seen from the numbers or from, from those affected, at least in the US in terms of the Muslim community, does anything particular stand out, male, female, age, demographic, wealthy, poor, does any anything in particular stand out? Yeah, um, you know, I would very simply say that the, I, I firmly believe this, the mm -hmm. problems that, that are around in society, uh, drugs, alcohol, pornography, uh, we are not immune from those problems. So I don't think that the average Muslim is suffering any more necessarily or less, but they, they, they do struggle with pornography. There's no question. Um, sure. man, the, males are higher than females, although females do have this issue as well, and it's growing. It's mm -hmm. not nearly as much as men, though. Mm -hmm. um, but still, um, you know, because the pornography industry has tried to target 
females as well by making some changes in some of the things they do. Mm -hmm. um, but but that's that's common with kind of the general trends, right? So it's there's far more males using it than females, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it's they certainly are using it. And uh, many people who are religious are using it. Sure. Um, so, how old how old does a person kind of on average get exposed? So not like someone who's addicted, but someone who just who gets yeah. exposed. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing as, you know, young as maybe 10 or 11, right, mm -hmm. to, to see something. I mean, uh, I think the first time I saw it, I, I was in fourth grade, and that was like on some magazine in a, you know, playground somewhere. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I didn't grow up like now what you don't even know life without the internet right for me there was maybe some life was without the internet but the technology has changed it mm. so you know we're seeing as young as 10 11 i mean i've gotten concerned parents you know their kids are 12 i think one was 10 mm. um so this is uh this is not unusual to have very early exposure um, often unintentional but it is happening at, at younger and younger ages that's really, that's really good. And just thinking about the size of the problem here, I've got some kind of some statistics. 56% uh, 50, of divorces involve one partner having an obsessive interest in pornography. Um, and then the size of the pornography industry in terms of dollars, in terms of billions of dollars, is more than the NBA, the NFL, and NASCAR combined. Um, this is kind of, are we, were we sleeping under a rock to have not realized the size of the issue? Or the severity as Muslims, it, it, I think well, we were in we were in denial, or we thought we were immune from it. Mm. Um, you hear divorce lawyers talk about this all the time, right? About uh, the issue of pornography. Now, here's the thing: it's not just necessarily, you know, and generally speaking, I'm general. My husband watched pornography. It's because it leads to other things. It's so much more complex than just watching something for pleasure for a few minutes, right? It can lead to complete detachment from your partner, can lead to seeking other partners. So when we say pornography, we're talking about this wide scope, which encompasses almost everything and, and anything. And, um, you know, we probably should have had this conversation 10, 15 years ago. A few people were having it, but not nearly enough. Hmm. But the magnitude is just, you know, it's it's just so massive. So perhaps perhaps we were. Um, that's why I believe that the the best way to tackle this is prevention, hmm. not someone who's been watching and now they're 23 and they want to get married and their hmm. brain is filled with this for the last 10 years, right? So the earlier the better. And maybe when we talk about some ways to uh, uh, sure. maybe get get over or help us or really the best thing, like as a prevention, maybe we can touch on some of those things. Sure. I mean, in terms of kind of uh, in the earlier part of the discussion, still looking at the problem, the size of the problem, the type of the problem, um, kind of, you know, some of the, the stuff you have out there, you've talked about there being problematic usage of pornography, so like addiction, obsessive usage. And then you have perhaps the more casual users or people who, you know, flick through a magazine or an ad pops up at them or people who kind of just get exposed. Um, what is the effect kind of on a psychological level? Um, what is the effect of looking at these kind of images? So obviously pornography is more than just nudity. It's it's a story being told. It's a narrative being played, right? Um, what are the harms of uh, a kind of the 
pornography at its lightest usage and as it, at, at its heaviest usage at, at its worst. Yeah. So as Muslims, for us, um, any and all use is problematic. Of course. Right, because it's harmful to the soul. Uh, we we don't look at it like a social scientist. You know, well, it might help in a relationship or, you know, if it's less than 30 minutes, then that's not really addiction, uh, which is fine. It, you know, we can argue about problematic and addiction and those terms, but sure. we're speaking as Muslims here. So any use of it is problematic um, for us, right? So that's important to uh, to keep in mind. And, uh, you know, it just, it can be such a wide array of maybe watching a little bit, maybe watching excessively. But what we see is that most Muslims that are watching, they feel extremely guilty. Hmm. And they feel, you know, they have this guilt and they have this, you know, there's a shame around it. <laughs> and if you don't have help, then you just continue to get buried in that and buried in that. And then you start feeling like a hypocrite. And um, you're, you're the khatib who's helping out. And next thing you know, you're not doing that anymore because you feel like you're a hypocrite. Mm. So we have to be proactive in addressing the problem. Um, and uh, what was the other part of the question you had mentioned? In terms of like heavy usage, in terms of things like addiction, yes. how harmful can that be? You know, maybe you can mention... Uh, in any case studies or examples you've you've seen, yeah. uh, what are the like the knock-on effects, the the implications uh, of of having a pornography addiction? Yeah. So um, when you look at some of the brain scans of pornography users, it looks like drug users, hmm. um, and uh, many have the same effect as drug users in terms of when you have a drug addiction, you take a little bit. And then you need more to get the same high and you keep increasing and increasing and increasing. That's why the drug dealer will give you the first hit for free, <laughs> right? To get you addicted. Uh, you get the, the porn preview 10 minutes for free, right? Mm -hmm. So the brain scans they're having, so you're having the same, so you have this, you'd start to develop tolerance. Um, it's basically like a physical addiction, except it's not to a physical substance. And when you stop using it, you'll have withdrawal. People will become moody, edgy, right? People will spend amounts they never thought they would spend, just like they do on physical uh, drugs. Um, people will act in certain ways that they never thought they would act, just like with a physical addiction. So a lot of those detriments of an addiction to a substance we see in those who use pornography. It's just, you may not be taking something physically, um, but you can still have those effects. And um, with the with the physical sort of uh, drug, when you get it out of your system, you keep, I mean, obviously it's still challenging. When you get it out of your system, you keep it out. At least the drug is gone. But with pornography, you know, our, our brain, it stores images, it, it remembers things. And, um, you know, it's, it's hard to unsee. So, I mean, there's some things we've seen that we just can almost never unsee. And, um, you know, the more we're exposed to this and constantly exposed, imagine someone uh, tried to live a life pleasing to Allah, didn't commit any haram, and on their wedding night, what's coming into their mind is some image of some 
I don't even know if you call them actors in some film they saw instead of with their spouse who they're with, right? Mm -hmm. And that can really have some serious effects on that relationship um, and, you know, unrealistic expectations because pornography is fantasy. Mm -hmm. um, human beings don't really, you can't just flip a switch. You know, that's why there's so much wisdom in our deen of the prophet's last time saying when you go to your, you know, to your, to your wife, you don't, you don't just go like a camel, right? You just, just don't just go to do your business. There should be some, you know, some foreplay, some, um, you know, this is a mature audience, right? There's, it's not just, just satisfy yourself and leave. Mm. So, but pornography is selling this message and this image of, you know, that, and again, predominantly uh, that women are there for your sexual pleasure and nothing else. And they will just perform whatever you want on demand. And, um, you know, then people take that in to their marriages. And that would be something I think that that needs to be studied in the Muslim community. Um, another thing that when you talk about the effects is that uh, there's this strange thing that when you, as you consume more pornography, you need to watch nastier and nastier and more hardcore things just to get the same sort of satisfaction. Hmm. And so you'll see many people will say, I, I couldn't even imagine ever watching whatever they're watching. You know, maybe it started out like, yeah, you know, I, I just used to watch, you know, uh, basic, uh, basic, uh, I was gonna say basic cable, but that may not make sense to the, to the audience, but yeah. yeah, but but basically, and I know also it's more liberal, right, on on UK television anyway. Um, mm. But there's there's different levels, right? So maybe it started with looking at I don't know people in, in a sense, Some of the most popular TV series out there at the moment have plenty of full frontal nudity. Yes, plenty of scenes that are kind of completely explicit, yes. and right. maybe you know that's that's perhaps the entrance has been a lot more accessible than what it used to be, maybe 10 years, 15 years ago? Oh, there's no question about it. I mean, um, again, with the accessibility, um, there's nothing is to the imagination anymore. You can access anything. Um, and that's just as, you know, yeah, or you who believe don't follow the footsteps of shaitan. Allah didn't say don't follow shaitan, that's a given but he comes in footsteps. So uh, these kinds of programs, they would have been up in arms about them 15 or 20 years ago, but mm -hmm. slowly and slowly they pushed the envelope slowly, slowly, slowly to where we're at the point where we're at now. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe those popular shows now, uh, you know, that leads to something more hardcore and hardcore. And there's, I, I don't even want to mention, but there's so many just bizarre things that you find in the world of pornography. And people are watching that and they would say, that's so nasty. I would have never imagined, you know, that I would take pleasure from that. But because you need the same thing, you need to keep pushing yourself. Uh, you find yourself watching things that are nastier and nastier. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's almost like you said, very similar to the actual physical drug where you need, you know, you need a bigger hit every time to feel the same response, to get that same high. Um, in terms of, you know, you've just mentioned uh, an ayah of the Quran, la shaytan. You know, don't follow the footsteps of the shaytan. Another one that comes to mind is fadallahuma bighurur. When Allah mentions how shaytan or iblis kind of he reels in 
Adam and Hawa alayhim salam slowly with his deception. So it's a it's a slow but gradual process until you you know perhaps one day find yourself somewhere you never expected to find yourself. Um right. coming to the the side of kind of the solutions uh, or coming to the side of prevention like you mentioned. Could you talk to us a little bit about um I suppose even before that in in your PhD or kind of from the results of your study did you find that religious muslims differed in their response or in their approach or in their kind of the root out of pornography compared to everybody else yeah so no no research is perfect of course uh, all research has limitations of course um i would have liked to have seen you know maybe a larger sample size um in my group to be honest i didn't know what i was going to get so i wanted to include women one of my advisors said well you're not going to get any any women i said just let me let me include it and and i did right was it enough to make hard conclusions no but basically the question i was asking in in plain english okay was uh does how is how religious you are does it have any effect on whether you watch pornography and you're depressed or whether you watch pornography and you're more anxious and i wanted mm. to see the difference between men and women in that so i my hypothesis was yes right so the more religious you are the more you're going to be depressed or you're going to be anxious what i found was people who are religious tended to be slightly more anxious and slightly more depressed but it wasn't earth shattering necessarily mm. um even though the literature shows us that and again if i had a larger sample maybe i would have seen more mm -hmm. um and so it wasn't it wasn't a, a massive thing and so basically what what i what my conclusions were were that how religious you are doesn't really have an effect on pornography or depression or pornography and anxiety but generally speaking those who you're using pornography were having more depressive symptoms and those who were using pornography were more prone to anxiety regardless of their religious commitment so that's very interesting because even when you look at other literature you'll see people maybe are not the most religious but they still may be feeling you know i mean if you imagine in a relationship mm -hmm. people may still feel like oh you know that they're my partner or, or you know my spouse is just cheating on me or something like that right mm -hmm. so it's interesting to note that um it's it it didn't seem to matter how religious one was it seems it, it it's it Uh, pornography use and depression pornography use and anxiety those who are using it are more prone to that to, and to experience that regardless of their religious uh religiosity and or religious level of commitment and so when someone asked me i said basically in a nutshell this is a human problem uh, and and no one really is immune to it now on the flip side the sample wasn't incredibly anxious or incredibly depressed So then the question becomes why and one possible explanation is maybe the religion is a protective factor for them. Um so maybe they're able to get over it a little bit more. Maybe they're finding tools to not just stay buried in self-pity. Um so that was something to take away. Um again, I think more needs to be done um and we'll continue to do that inshallah. Um but those were just some of the things uh, that I found. So uh and, and you know there there was a whole thing i came across of of clergy not necessarily muslim from what i've initially seen but 
uh, like pastors and pornography addiction and sex addiction. Wow. And this was going back like 20 years ago. Wow. And so you start thinking, what, what, what can we find out about our own communities from that? So it doesn't, you know, and, and it doesn't seem to matter that someone is super religious or not, people are being affected by this problem. That doesn't mean everyone that watches pornography in, unintentionally or everyone is addicted. Of course, I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is that just because one is religious does not mean that they're immune from the problem. That's really interesting. It's almost a, at least when it goes to the, gets to the addiction phase and correct me if I'm wrong, it kind of, it's a hijacking of your brain um, in terms of losing losing elements of willpower, losing, you know, kind of being triggered Im immediately and relapsing, etc. Um, my question, next question is going to be perhaps a popular one you've heard quite often before, and maybe one specific to Muslim contexts. There is a sentiment of uh, boys will be boys. It's just a phase my teenager is going through and when he gets married, he'll be fine. Or, you know, I'm in my 20s. Let me just, in, you know, I'll, when I get married, I'll be fine. Is marriage a solution? to pornography addiction in your experience? So um, so just on that uh, comment about the kind of addiction part, mm -hmm. so it certainly can have that effect like it has in, in drugs. Um, another model which is proposed, which is also interesting, is that the pornography is a cover for something else going on. So in other words, you're extremely stressed at work, and so pornography is an outlet. Uh, and that, you know, certainly has its, its merit as well. So it may not be necessary. It could be something else going on in life, which is causing the use, not necessarily, uh, just the use. So it, it kind of depends on the individual. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's, it's asking for disaster. If you have consumed years and years of pornography and go into a marriage thinking, that that's going to be solve all your problems because you're going into the marriage. We know we're encouraged to marry young. Mm -hmm. uh, we know there's a natural desire Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created in us. And um, that's why we should get married young or, you know, we have our circumstances, whatever the case may be. Uh, but young, you know, getting married young certainly is encouraged. However, if you go in, it's almost like you're entering a marriage with an addiction to something. And that addiction was not dealt with. And so now you're coming into the marriage with that. And that, again, leads to what I alluded to earlier, unrealistic expectations, um, just fantasy, right? Uh, we're human beings, right? Uh, we get sick. We're tired. We have things that we want to do. In, these, in this pornography, it just makes it seem like our only purpose in life is just to you know, just to have intimacy and that's it. And when you snap your fingers, again, I'm because majority are men, when you snap your fingers, woman's just gonna be there for you, mm. right? And that's not a healthy way to go into a marriage. Um, and, and that's going to have detrimental effects if that's not dealt with before. This is not just watching something here and there. I'm talking about people who have been consuming for years and years and years and the whole, you know, just, oh, just, uh, let them be themselves. Allah said, Wala zina. He said, don't come close to it. Uh, it started with some watching, more hardcore stuff. 
and it leads to next thing you know, you're actually physically with someone and you never ever imagined that would be the case. I'm not saying again, everyone that watches it gets to that, but that can absolutely happen. And that's why we see the wisdom of not coming close to it. So if you go into a relationship and you haven't corrected this, I think it can be quite detrimental um, and, and lead to lead to expectations which are just not humanly possible. Like that's not how humans are. And a marriage is multifaceted. It's not just about physical relationships. And I'll say this, I'm not super old, okay? Um, I will just say that the marital intimacy, if that's what your marriage is based on, it is not gonna last very long. There's, you know, the, the idea of the partnership, you have the families coming together, eventually you have children you wanna raise, you wanna to grow together spiritually, if it's just based off of one thing, because what are you doing like 99% of the time? Mm -hmm. You're doing other things. You have to communicate. You got to figure out uh, what curtains are going to go up, right? Um, you got to go hang out at your in-laws. You got to do, uh, you got to do your work, your schooling, whatever the case may be. So you're setting yourself up for disaster if you think that that is the, that is going to be the one thing that's going to maintain my marriage. And I think Sometimes we think that. I didn't say it's not important sure. um, because it is. And it's not dirty, right? There's a reward for it when it's done lawfully. Um, mm -hmm. Allah did not create us to be celibate creatures. Mm. But um, it's, it's, I think it's really going to have a devastating effect on relationships. I, this is something, you know, for, for future study. We see a ton of divorce now um, amongst Muslims in the U.S., some, some estimates have the same, if not more, than the general population. And who knows how much of that is linked to, you know, coming in, uh, having these uh, expectations, uh, which are not, no one can live up to those. Sure. Would you say it's, um, you know, amongst your kind of the people who come to you from the Muslim community with this, with, with pornography as, as a challenge, as an issue, uh, or something they're struggling with. Would you say it's common for that to be married individuals? Most tend to be young brothers. Mm -hmm. um, however, married couples are not out of the picture. Got it. So mm -hmm. um, I've had people kind of tell me um, how their life was just ruined uh, by this, even though externally they all seem to be very successful. Um, you'll have uh, maybe someone say, I want help for my husband, right? So that would also come under married couple. So it's certainly not unheard of. Sure. And if there's not kind of this growing in the relationship, then, you know, people might check out, right? And um, and if, if, you're, if we're not building ourselves up spiritually, then we're not setting ourselves up for success, right? Uh, you and I, if we incidentally look at some women, we will be attracted to them. There's, of, of course, that, that there's nothing to, there's no way we won't. But yeah. our deen, we pray, inshallah, uh, will, if it's at a certain level, will, will protect us from going beyond the limits. Sure. Right? So... 
but yeah, it's it's really uh, it's 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 not uncommon for for couples. Sure. And coming to that point on what you just mentioned about the preventative me- measures in the deen, there's you know comes to mind uh, the idea of modest dressing for both males and females. The idea of not wearing revealing clothes, both for males and females again. The idea of uh, you know controlling one's eyes or being in control of what you're looking at or preventing the lustful gaze, the lustful glance. Allah knows the, the sneaky glance that's taken and what the hearts are concealing. Um, there is a kind of, in the prophetic community, there's this aura of uh, protect yourself, prevent you know this from happening before it gets to protect your privates starting with the eyes however kind of the society we live in is one in which there's an there's an explosion of sexual material available uh, that was perhaps never there and uh, you know 1400 years ago and really can be considered uh, a, a real jihad a real struggle against the self a real struggle to, to remain in control of one's eyes and one's desires um, you mentioned prevention could you talk a bit more about what you envision to be kind of, at least for the Muslim community, where does the solution start? You know, there, there are parents here whose nine-year-olds have smartphones, whose 12-year-olds uh, spend loads of time on their computer in their room playing games. You've got perhaps uh, teenagers, university students who might be struggling with this. You know, starting with what you'd say is prevention. What does that look like as a, as a, as a solution? Yeah. Well, first of all, we praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because he told us that he won't burden us or a soul more than it can handle. So, yes, we have technology. We have access like never never before. Um, We have temptations seemingly wherever we go. uh, But Allah did not put us to... uh, He set us up for success, not for failure. And so if we do our best... To, to follow the sunnah, uh, then inshallah, we will be able to survive. Um, and perhaps 1400 years ago, well, of course they didn't have the technology and those things, but there were still some just very, very strange practices going on. Mm-hmm. And the same human desires of lust, jealousy, anger have always existed. And that's the sure. beauty of Islam is that it addresses these sort of universals. So that's really important to keep in mind. Sure. Um, When it comes to prevention, you know, no parent should be giving their nine-year-old a smartphone. It just just doesn't make any sense. One of, uh, now it may be a challenge. You say, okay, I'm not, I don't give them a smartphone, but all their friends have it. That's why I think working in groups um, would make it easier for us as parents. So, for example, you say, "Hey, we're all going to get together uh, for this uh, for for dinner," and uh, but we're not going to no phones, no electronics. Yeah, for the kids, so they can go play outside, they can do whatever, but no phones. Hey, we're driving to we're commuting or we're driving to school together. Sure, everyone can go, but no one on their phones, right? So that might be a, a way to do it. Um, and, and I just, you know, I, I just, I was listening again this to non-Muslims. And he was talking about how he didn't give his, you know, his kids a smartphone. And the kids come back, they said, but then so-and-so has a phone. And they said, well, we don't do that. Hmm. Okay, they can do whatever they want. This is our principles and our beliefs. 
and uh, you know, and and these are, these are not Muslims, right? So there's no reason why we can't do that either. Um, there's no there's no reason that a nine year old should have a smartphone, mm-hmm. um, and you know, unregulated use is some parents are just clueless, just absolutely clueless. And it takes effort to know, but that's part of your job as a parent. There's no getting around that. Uh, Mm. You know, you're not going to out technology your kids. You know, you're going to block something. They'll just find a way around it. There's that's why um, early prevention starts with teaching our kids principles. Okay, mm. age-appropriate principles. You teach the three-year-old, look, you cl- we're closing the door when you're going to the bathroom now. Uh, mm. You don't change in front of others now, right? Yeah. Right. But we kind of stop at that because that's easy because they listen to us and they don't really know what's going on. Mm. But then the conversations stop. So I know you have a lot of uh, young professionals, young parents, and, and I'm hopeful that they will listen and understand that you and I don't have the choice to not talk to our kids about the topic of sexuality. It's not optional. We have to do it. We have to start early, again, age appropriate, and we have to be clear and open and honest. And that is the best prevention that we can give them. We, we can't just keep them hiding in a box. Uh, it's not going to work. It's never worked, actually, because they will learn it somewhere else. There's no way. They, they were learning it somewhere else when we didn't have all this technology. Mm. So with the technology, they will. This is the, the greatest thing we can do for the coming generations, is to start talking to them early and be open about things, be honest about things, um, because the other thing is, your thirteen-year-old, they already know. Mm. They already know. They're probably hard, saying, hard reality to swallow. Very difficult to swallow that idea. Indeed, indeed. But they're, maybe they're just sitting there waiting. Like, I, I wish my parents would talk to me about this. Mm. I, you know, I, I just keep told. All I'm told is like, don't look at girls. But like, I, I just, you know, there's there's no depth to the conversation. There's no dialogue. And uh, that is the best thing we can do because we, when we instill the principles and they're around their friends and something comes up, they're not going to watch it, right? Um, simple example. So, you know, some people that like buy something once and then return it. Yeah. And you use it once and return it, right? Yeah. And so what do they ask you when you're, oh, was something wrong with it? Why are you, you know, they'll ask you a simple question. And most people say, oh, no even though they used it once. Hmm. Now, when I was growing up, a lot of people, a lot of Muslims around, they used to do that, mm-hmm. right? Or we'll sneak you into the gym, you know, to play basketball if you're not a member, it's all right. Hmm. But my father, and obviously I still remember it because I'm t- telling you about it. He said, that's wrong. If you didn't, you can't lie to them about wearing it or if you don't have a membership. He didn't give me a, do a khutbah. He didn't open up a book of hadith. And um, alhamdulillah, like that principle stuck, even though that's not the norm or many people do do it. But he started it at a young age. Mm -hmm. He did it himself, right? And it stuck. 
So that's why the early years are the time. Everyone freaks out about 13 and 14, but that's not the time that you start talking about this. It has to be before. You know what? You're going into seventh grade now and people may that you're going to be people see people in relationships and talking about things and you know this is what we believe as muslims and this is how we operate right mm -hmm. we don't go in there we're not picking fights with people we're not you know we're living in a in, in, in the society that we live in but we have to instill the principles uh, uh you know i wish it was a more exciting answer right people want like People love the stories about how someone was addicted for 15 years and then they turned their life around and then let's put them on a TED talk. I know everybody loves those stories, uh, but we want just the opposite. Yeah. So early prevention, there's there's no question about it. That That is the best way to do it. Um, the next thing is, what if you're involved in it now? So if you're involved yeah. in it now, there's multiple aspects. Um, if it is minor, and, and I don't know if I can put a time on it, but let's say... So generally in addiction, um, a simple way to define it is, does it take you away from major major life activities? Mm -hmm. okay. For example, uh, one case study I was reading, this individual went to a prestigious uh, university and lost his scholarship because he'd just be up all night, went to sleep late, wouldn't get up for classes, failed his classes. Mm -hmm. Someone not caring to be intimate with their wife anymore because they'd rather go in the room and watch something else. Someone getting routinely getting late to work and getting warnings because they're up late. Someone spending hundreds or thousands of dollars, you know, on prostitution or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so those are major things that are happening. Then there's kind of the more, I hate to say minor, but just maybe less serious, still serious, but less serious. Less maybe severe, almost. Less severe, yeah. yeah. So maybe, you know, there's a watch a couple hours a week or something like that. So your life isn't being necessarily impaired in that way, but it's still problematic. There could be still spiritual issues, right? When you're going to pray, you don't want to be thinking about these things. So, you know, the Prophet ﷺ told us to follow a sayyah with a hasana, tamhuha. When you follow a good deed with a sin, it wipes it away. And there's a lot of wisdom to that. Uh, in psychology, they call it behavior modification, where you just learn one behavior and eventually you reward or penalize yourself so that you leave the behavior. So you say, you know what, next time I'm going to watch. So I watch two hours a week on Friday nights. Next time I watch an hour, I'm going to pay $100. Hmm. Give $100 in sadaqah. You give an oath or something, for example, you could make an oath that if I were to watch again. Yes, yes. Now, you keep doing that, you're going to go broke. Okay. After, after a while. <laughs> so now somebody's saying, but but you know what? Um, I, I, I don't have that kind of, I'm not able to do that financially. Okay, well, you can fast. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you say that, all of a sudden it's like, okay, I'll give, I'll give the money. Because <laughs> fasting <laughs> could be tough, right? Of course. So you say, you know what? When I watch for an hour, I'm going to fast as an expiation. If you have a mild case, mild usage, inshallah, that will get you on the right track to using less. And we pray, leaving. Uh, and of course, sincere dua um, and understanding what, what they call your triggers. So if you know that it's, it's at certain times in certain places, 
then you make adjustments, right? When someone um, is in serious drug addiction, we tell them, what are your triggers? Oh, when I'm around these particular friends, when I go to this part of town, mm -hmm. I'm more likely to do that. So when it's a little more mild, inshallah, the behavior modification and that sunnah practice would help you to overcome it. So it's not dominating your life or being, you know, making, being serious. Mm -hmm. If you're at a point where it is having a major impairment in your life, okay, work, relationships, school, then you may, you probably need to seek professional help. I would urge any community leaders listening to this to make it okay to seek that help. I think that's the problem because people aren't getting help because of how, how can I go tell my, uh, I can't tell my mom that I'm suffering yeah. from this. Like, what am I, I can't do that. And that is the crux of the problem. That really goes back to the whole stigma of seeking help. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, people, people are, you know, they're, they're basically, uh, you know, they will have uh, regarding physical substances. I mean, they're drinking, they're smoking, everybody in family knows it, but we're not going to talk about it. Mm. Pretend like it doesn't exist. And years and years just go by and lives are ruined. Yeah. Right. Generations are ruined. It has to be okay to say, I need to seek help. Now, nobody's saying go on the member and, and, and say, Hey, this individual here, they have a problem. But if we can't even approach our parents or our mm -hmm. brother or something like that, uh, then we're, we're not going to get the help that we need. So if, if, if there's a serious impairment in life, then I think there needs to be some professional help. And that would include a spiritual aspect that would include, um, you know, some, some counseling and things like that to help get over the problem. I think it'd be incredibly difficult um, if you're consumed by it to just leave it what they say, cold turkey. I'm just going to stop and that's it. Mm -hmm. Is it the, the psychological impact of the addiction is usually so deep by then that it's not as simple as, not necessarily as simple as cold turkey? Yes, yes, absolutely. It's just, you know, you've been doing something for so long. Um, you, don't, you don't know how to help yourself, mm. right? We, we don't know how to help ourselves. So that it's, it's just incredibly, incredibly difficult to overcome that by ourselves. There's something and, uh, remarkable what you just said about community leaders, parents being approachable to talk to about this stuff is the hadith where the Prophet ﷺ is approached by a young man who says, kind of almost admitting he can't control himself anymore. And he says, just let me commit, let me fornicate, just let me have uh, you know unlawful intercourse with, with a woman and the prophet sallallahu you know calls him he, the boy with young man was being pushed away by the sahaba the prophet sallallahu calls him closer he asks him you know would you like this for your mother would you like this for your sister people don't like this for their sisters or mothers either and kind of very gently explains it to him and pulls him in um and there there isn't that uh, perhaps always that approachability uh, to the local imam the local sheikh parents there is a sort of standoffish coldness sometimes um that would be good to do away with and bring that warmth at least to the the, the youngsters and 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 non-youngsters that are struggling with this yeah i mean i would say you know to our respected community leaders uh parents uh, you know uh, both of which uh, you know I'm, I'm a part of your groups i'm not picking sides <laughs> but if someone is coming to you and they need the help they already feel bad about it. They already know it's haram. They already know they're not supposed to be doing it. 
tearing into them is not going to help the situation at that point, right? Um, when we're learning and teaching and we're expre expressing displeasure about certain things, that's that's one thing. But when somebody's already come to you and mm -hmm. said, you know, the, the reason why I got the worst grades I've gotten last semester was because I have this problem, uh, then that they've already, they don't need to be dumped on. They don't need to be pushed away. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that message is sometimes maybe I, because I talk about it, I'm like, oh yeah, this message must be getting across to everyone, but it's, it's not, it's not there at a communal level. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, perhaps going back to the mentor I told you about at the beginning, yeah. um, he gave a, a khutbah on pornography and somebody came up and said, what are you talking about this in the khutbah for? He said, when else you want to talk about it? Right. What else are we going to talk about it? This is the most people are coming this week, which is still only a fraction of the community. Right. Yeah. Even Juma yeah. is only a fraction of the Muslims that are out there. What else do you want to talk about it? Well, when we don't talk about it, this is exactly what happens. So support them and uh, get them the help that they need. They already know that they've done wrong. They've already uh, they already have that nadam, right? They already have nad mutawbah, that regret is repentant. They already have all of that. So you're not going to get anywhere by just telling them how terrible a person they are. In in terms of that, what you just mentioned, even about Toba, um, we know that Toba's repentance, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala asks us to repent, to return to him. Uh, repentance has to be preceded by sincere regret, has to be preceded by uh, de being determined not to return to the sin. Now, this is where sometimes it can get complex in terms of addictive behavior, is that every time you do it, you have a determination never to return to it. But there is that, un, you know, kind of under the hood inkling that you have that, but I know I'm going to go back to it. How can somebody who's seriously addicted to pornography deal with, how can he have, he or she have sincere repentance in yeah. such a situation? <clears throat> so remember, there was a drunk that used to make the Prophet Wasallam laugh. Well, I, I shouldn't. I shouldn't say drunk, but there was a companion who used to drink, right? And the other companions cursed him. And the Prophet said, "Do not curse him, for he loves Allah and His Messenger." Mm -hmm. This gives us insight to the the chronic nature of relapse, because he kept doing it over and over and over again. Something like fifty percent of people relapse uh, in addiction, so it's certainly not uncommon. We know that. If you, if you repent to Allah and you're thinking like, I'm just going to do this again tomorrow, then that wasn't sincere repentance, hmm. right? That wasn't really sincere repentance. But if you repent to Allah and you have sincere repentance and you commit that sin again and you repent again, we know that Allah will forgive us every single time. And I'm not... You know, I don't want people to misinterpret that like, oh, it's all good. I'll just keep committing the sin. Because again, that right, that statement right there shows you don't have any sincerity. But it's showing, it's just showing the mercy of Allah and how we are going to mess up sometimes, multiple times. But the door is always there for repentance. Um, I will work with people in drug addiction. This is their fifth or sixth time that they're in recovery. And they're doing well now. What was the difference? Well, before, you know, I wasn't really that serious. 
Mm. Before, you know, I was kind of doing it because my mom wanted me to do it. I didn't really feel it. That's different. So it may be a process, right? Some people may not realize the nature of the problem that they have. And so, they, oh, I'm just going to stop tomorrow, right? Or they had listen to a lecture, get all emotional. I'm just going to stop. Um, and then things don't work out the way that they, they plan. So that door is open. And, um, you know, another, another thing that shows repentance is not just, uh, of course, asking a lot for forgiveness, but what are you doing mm-hmm. as well? So in the case of the mild addiction, are you doing one of those following the sin with a good deed? If in the case of more severe um, issues, are you taking some plan of action or do you think you're just gonna be able to just do the same thing over and over and over again? So that also is part of the Thoba equation, right? Uh, that's important to keep in mind. It's, it's kind of a, we have to, you don't just believe, you gotta believe and you gotta do some, 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 some deeds, some good deeds after that as well. So inshallah, you know, with the conviction and, and using the resources, then inshallah, you know, you, you keep at it. You ask Allah for guidance and, um, you know, inshallah, you get through it. Jazakallah khair, Dr. Omar. Um, before we take some questions, uh, was there anything else you wanted to mention uh, from your side in terms of pornography as a problem, as a, in terms of the solutions? Did you feel like there was anything left out of the discussion? Yeah, I mean, there's there's lots and lots to discuss. Um, I would yeah. just just sum up. I would just say no one is immune from viewing pornography or viewing it excessively. Mm. Um, the younger we start and educate our kids and younger generations, the greater chance we give them. They're not. I don't believe in this. Oh, they're going to start going looking because we bring it up. I, I think I think we're over that stage now because they're going to learn it anyway. Mm-hmm. The younger we educate, the better it is. Um, if you have are involved in this, you know, you're not a evil person who cannot be saved. Uh, there you, you have opportunities, inshallah, with determination and sincere dua and, and, and the right help that you can get over this. Uh, so don't, don't bury yourself in shame um, and uh, reach out to someone that you trust, uh, you know, because Otherwise, it's just going to keep the cycle will just keep going and going. And, uh, you know, it will uh, it will cause more pain the longer it goes on. Sure. Jazakallah um, Dr. Omar. I'll put the first question up here. And Ahmed Kuta asks, do you think the lack of sex ed taught within our own communities is a potential root cause? Children are learning about basic sex ed from school, which is taught on the school's own terms. What's your what's your thoughts on that? Absolutely, absolutely. There, there, there is no sex ed. Uh, there, about any of these issues that we're that we're seeing in in the current day. Um, so yes, and and that's where it starts. Uh, but at the end of the day, the parents have the greatest influence. When you look at the research on children maintaining their religion, mm-hmm. yes, uh, peers are very important. No question about it. But the strongest determining factor is the parents. So the parents cannot rely on the school for sexual education. They can't rely on the imam. Those might be tools. And sometimes in the case of the school, it might be detrimental, actually. But uh, yes, there's there's just no conversation. There's no dialogue. 
and a lot of, I believe, harm can pre be prevented if we just have those open dialogues. Sure. That's, um, I think that's quite a, a tough one to, to implement in practice, but one we've all got to take away. Um, Ashad asks, I'm interested to get your perspective on where this inclination towards lust comes from. It seems to me that there is a fundamental spiritual emptiness that lust for porn is attempting to fill. That's quite a, I think that gets the root cause of the, of the question. Um, what do you think about that, Dr. Yeah, so, you know, the, the tricky thing about pornography is it appeals to something which is a natural inclination for us. Hmm. You know, I often tell people, I never had a desire to drink alcohol. Even though you see all these commercials during matches and things like that. You might have uh, Dr. Omar might be stuck. I think there might be a brief issue with the with Dr. Omar's connection, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, okay. Back. Okay. Uh, good yeah. old technology. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. So I, I think it was, it was asking about, yeah. So what I was saying was that the tricky thing about, um, about pornography is that it's, it, it, it appeals to a natural inclination. Mm -hmm. um, unlike like alcohol, people drink it because of the social environment. Nobody like says, Oh, I'm just dying to drink alcohol. Right. Uh, what maybe after they've had it and all that, then they will say that. But naturally, nobody would say that. Whereas the desire to to have intimacy is it's there naturally. So that's what makes it a little more difficult. And um, it's 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 uh, it is it is perfectly permissible within the constitute within the constructs of a halal relationship, which mm -hmm. is in marriage through Islam. And uh, so there does need to be some lust in that respect. Um, if we didn't have that, there would human race would stop, right? There's also a practical thing uh, for that as well. So um, in terms of is it fulfilling a spiritual void? Uh, it might be. It might be. You know, in some cases, it could be that people are using the pornography because of something else. Yeah. Um, and so... You know, like, like I said before, like maybe they're having problems in their family or they're super stressed at work or school or something. They just need a release. They just need some tension to be released. So it, it, it depends on each individual what that may be. It might be a spiritual issue. Mm -hmm. um, to some level, it, you know, all of these addictions are a spiritual issue uh, to some level. Um, someone's asked, what's the best way to contact you, uh, Dr. Omar? And I have your... Uh, website I decided to put up here uh, so people can reach. But is there any other way uh, you'd say people could reach you? Yeah, Zakallah Khairan. So on on that, um, that is about ninety nine percent ready to go. I know it is it is up, um, but there's a contact form on there, and you know I I, I call it spiritual consulting. Um, so that allows me to kind of align my Islamic values with uh, with my. Uh, counseling background so there's consultations um there are you know opportunities for um 
for individual counseling, family counseling. So whatever, uh, you know, if someone's interested, they can certainly reach out there, inshallah. And for those viewing, uh, we've got a feedback form in the video description. So anybody watching live, feel free to, you know, before you do uh, leave, before you do drop off to fill in the feedback for how you found this and what topics you're interested in seeing uh, in future. And certainly if you'd like to have Dr. Omar again, and I think we might need to, because this is really quite a deep discussion. There's a lot of facets to this uh, that require exploring. Um, we'll take one more question if you don't mind, Doctor, and then uh, we'll uh, call it for the night. Um, uh, Ash has asked if people await marriage as a means of satisfying their lust, is this a this is a recipe for disaster? How can one learn to move away from this inclination towards lust and cultivate a more healthy relationship? I think you touched on this before with regard to marriage and not being just lust, not being just about right. intimacy. Right. So I think you know, Allah didn't create men and women to live on different planets. Uh, when we have these sort of extremes, particularly in the societies we live in, I, I don't think it's, it benefits people very much. So, you know, we have etiquette in how we interact, how we dress, how we talk. And if we have that, then that's going to make it easier for us to stay away from haram. We are not the only religious group that does not believe in premarital intimacy, okay? All the other major religions do as well. Maybe we're just better at upholding it, right? Uh, we're not gonna change anything. We're not just gonna accept it and say it's okay. But this is not unique to Muslims, right? Because there's an understanding that it's not healthy for society when you just let it be a free-for-all for everything. So having uh, you know, the ability to interact appropriately with the opposite gender and then controlling what we can control. Yes, I understand there's a lot of explicit material um, on Netflix and all that. No one put a gun to my head and said, I have to watch it. Yeah. Right. There's, there's many healthy activities I can fill my time with. Uh, being physically active re releases a lot of endorphins, um, you know, spending time with people, I'm not saying you have, it doesn't have to be a halaqa all the time, right? But just yeah. when we're in a, a good environment, uh, you know, you, we just, uh, you, you don't have a desire. Like you're not going to have those desires to go maybe watch some of this stuff or things like that. So there are many things we absolutely can control. We can limit our time on our phones. We, we have control of that, right? So we do have that ability. And uh, inshallah, then we, we get to a point where when that time for marriage does come, uh, you know, we, we, we're at a point where we have a greater chance to make, make it successful. And also moving beyond that marriage is just for physical desires. There's, there's much more to it than that. I know we, we watch these Hollywood movies, you know, love will conquer all and all this stuff, but uh, there's more beyond. So uh, education on marriage should be more holistic right, and presenting what exactly it is. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, that is the, I, I, I know people get divorced, some people uh, stay single for various circumstances, but the ideal situation is that you have, you live life in that marriage relationship, and there's a reason for that. So it's far beyond just, uh, just sort of the, the physical, that's one aspect, but there needs to be growth in other areas as well. Wallahu alam.
Jazakallah khair, Dr. Amar. We've really uh, benefited from this conversation and I hope our viewers and listeners have as well. Um, anybody who's, who's struggling with pornography, anybody who knows somebody who is, uh, point them to this conversation, point them to Dr. Amar's website, point them to other resources like Purify Your Gaze or Tezkiah, uh, another service in the UK that helps people quit these uh, quit you know addictions. Nobody's above, nobody's immune. Um, and certainly uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's mercy encompasses all. Jazakallah uh, khair once more Dr. Amar for your presence, for your company, and we hope we can see you again. To all our viewers, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, on Instagram, Roots Academy UK, and we'll see you on future conversations, inshallah ta'ala. Once more, a reminder to fill in the feedback form, and that's all for the evening. We'll see you soon, inshallah. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa